week 12, managing extra. David's gone from working in fields to serving in the palace, living in the palace, winning battles on behalf of King Saul, and then King Saul becoming so jealous of David's success that King Saul starts this lifelong process of trying to kill David. Last week, we saw that David showed godly mercy to King Saul because he and his army of 600 were in a cave. King Saul goes in the cave to use the bathroom. He's by himself. He's vulnerable. And they have every opportunity to kill him to take the throne. But, they, but David says, no, I'm not taking this throne so that I get the glory for taking it. I'm going to spare him and show mercy so that when I take the throne, the only person who gets glory, God, is you and not me. And I think many times in the church, we've got to understand that it's not about putting things in our time. It's about making sure that every decision is so that God will get glory in the victory and not ourselves. Amen. So that's where they're at. And in that moment, when he showed mercy and justice and humility, we saw that Saul's eyes were open. He saw David as the man who God saw him as. And King Saul, who has spent years and years trying to kill him, says, you are truly the, the king that is to, to succeed me, and you're going to be a great, great king. In that moment, Saul said, David, when, when you become king, because again, he's seen truth for the first time, he says, please, would you promise to spare my life and the life of my descendants and generations? And David says, yes, I'll make that promise. So in tonight, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, this is the first chapter in a long time that King Saul is not even mentioned. David has a whole new run-in with someone else in this kingdom. So in 1 Samuel chapter 25, starting out in verse 1, it says this. Now Samuel died. And all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. And then David moved down to the wilderness of, Mount, of Maon. If you remember who Samuel was, Samuel, which the book is called First Samuel, Samuel is the prophet that God sent to find David, even though he didn't know his name, he didn't know who David was. God just says, find the one who is to be the next king because I'm disappointed in Saul. Saul is the prophet that anointed David as king. At this point, uh, Samuel, I say Saul, Samuel is the prophet who actually at this point, he's fathering other prophets. He is kind of like the, the, the top of the game prophet. He is, he, he, he is the one that um, God is speaking through and preparing the nations. And all of a sudden, Samuel dies after almost serving for almost 70 years. Samuel's been judging Israel, and he's been at the highest-ranking priest. This is the same man that God spoke to, 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 to Samuel for everything going on in the kingdom. It's, he was very important to David. David saw Samuel as a spiritual father. Most likely, he saw Samuel as a man that he could talk to on behalf of God. And in his most uh, stressful moments, running from someone trying to kill him, that man dies. And David is, is going through this time of grief. He was hurt. He was everything up to this point in his life that was going good is starting to work against him. And he's going through a lot of grief and anger and pain. And the Bible says in that verse that Samuel died and Israel gathered. And then David went on a trip to Maon. And this trip wasn't just a casual, let's get out of town. This, this, this entire traveling down to Maon was probably a grieving time for David. And David was in an emotional state where anything could have probably set him off. And I know that none of you are like that. The emotions don't change you. But there's times in my life when things go wrong, the slightest thing can set me off. Just bless, bless my mom because she's in there in, in the moments every time that something sets me off. And y'all don't hear that side, but she does. And I can just hear in the spirit my mom going, you <laughs> you know, like, he's there. But we always have those times when the slightest things can set us off because of the emotional trauma we're going through. So this is where David's at. He's traveling to Maon. He's gone from a life of success, but now he's running for his own life. Saul has finally backed up, but David is still in the wilderness. And in verse 2, it says this. There was a wealthy man from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. For those of you who don't know what sheep sharing time is, this was the time that he was going to get all the stuff that helped him get his wealth. He was going to shear the sheep to, to sell everything so that he could continue to be rich and wealthy. Verse 3, this man's name was Nabal and his wife Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all of his dealings. There was something important to point out. 
it says that the wealthy man owned property near the town of Carmel. For those of you that might not know, or maybe just as a reminder, Carmel was actually mentioned in the very first message of this series in 1 Samuel 15. God had called King Saul to go to Carmel, and he was to defeat all the Amalekite army and all the, the goats and the sheep and, and every descendant. And instead of following God's orders, King Saul decided to capture King Agag and keep the best of the animals and the best of the crops so that he could be sustained. And God said, no, you shouldn't do that. When Samuel came to King Saul and said, do what are you doing? God said, do this, and you did something different. Saul said, I did what I was supposed to do. You don't know what you're talking about. And Saul was so prideful that in Carmel, he, he, he built a, a self-praising monument, a statue of himself, so that people will remember that this man, King Saul, spared the people. So in this town, with this self-praising monument, the cities around Carmel probably had no idea of anything going on with Samuel. They probably had no idea that God has spoke to Samuel and said, David's going to be king. And they had no idea, most likely, that Saul was corrupt because all they saw was that Saul was the king that God appointed. So whatever he said, they, they went with. And they probably had no idea that David was supposed to replace him. And since they knew Saul and saw this monument, they probably had a reverence for him. Nabal was a rich dude. He owned a lot. He owned so much that he bought the most beautiful bride. I wish that was something we could do in our culture. I, I, would, I would get a master's degree or a doctorate, and I, I would make so much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was a jerk. He was crude. He was mean. Nabal would have been aware of who David was in the eyes of the local government. And in the eyes of the local government, David was not a godly man. In the eyes of the government, he was a rebellious person who was trying to take the throne. And the government was trying to kill him. So in that context of everyone seeing that this was just simply a town that loved King Saul, they knew that this David was around. And in verse 4 it says, When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent ten of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that at sheep shearing time, while your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed you and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, they'll tell you that this is true. So would you be kind to us? And since we have come in a time of celebration, please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. David's own men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. So you have this picture of David and his men. Remember, they're traveling around the wilderness, and they're actually around this town. And instead of stealing things from the town, stealing food, stealing water, stealing sheep, stealing whatever they needed to do, they were actually in a posture of protection around this town, even though it's the town with a statue of the dude that was trying to kill him. You talk about the humility in David. If it were me, I would have been trying to tear down statues and, and trying to bring justice just like you know, so-called peaceful Christians in America tried to do. That was a jab. You can. <laughs> but David wasn't doing that. He was protecting. He was honoring. And Nabal took care of sheep for one reason. They benefited him. He knew that this 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats was the key to his success, the key to his wealth. He did not care about the sheep. He cared about what the sheep could do because it wasn't the sheep that brought him wealth. It was their attributes that sustained his wealth. And as I was reading that, God told me something. He said, true pastors love their sheep not for what the sheep bring, but simply because of who the sheep are. And I was praying about that, and I felt like the Holy Spirit said to make this plain, let us become a house who does not put value on gifts and service brought, whether a house who simply loves each other even if nothing is brought to the table. Because it's so easy to be obsessed with what you can bring to us that we start valuing your gift rather than simply that you are a child of God. The gifts are awesome and, and that they are meant to be in operation and to do the work of the kingdom, but we cannot get so obsessed with gift that we value gift over the person. The fact of the matter is that we are all sheep. 
We are all the people of God. And God says, would you just love them for who they are and not what they can do? It's real easy to build bitterness toward people when, when, when we see people who don't contribute. Because we get on this kind of platform and we say, well, I do this and you do nothing and I do this and you don't do this. And, and who, how dare you get this benefit and that benefit? Why is God blessing you? We're not, because we're on this pedestal of what we do when God says, let's not focus on what we do. Let's focus on who we are. And then in focusing on who we are, we get unified in what we do. <laughs> the reason I want you to contribute at Relentless is not because of what you can do for me. It's about one thing, and it's our vision, to see people come alive in Christ. I don't want to use you for my benefit. I want to see you walk in your gift and ability to see you come alive. Because there is never a pinnacle of coming alive. And our identity in Christ, if he is, if he is everlasting and never-ending, then that means the degree of identity we walk into is also everlasting and never-ending. So from this point until the day you die, you have more identity to walk in. And that's what I'm obsessed with. And that's what I want. I want to see you walk into new levels of identity. I want you to see, to see you walk in a new level of glory, of bringing glory to God, going from glory to glory. God gets glory in you walking in his identity. And it's not because I want to use it. It's because I want to see you prosper in all you are. Prosper not necessarily financially. Prospering in the sense of simply becoming. But Nabal sees with a perspective of how does this benefit me. So he's full of himself. And in that moment of profit, of all these sheep shearing, he throws this huge celebration. And in the middle of the celebration, David comes because it's obvious that Nabal had more than enough. And then this whole time David and his army were surrounding Maon, the city that Nabal lived in, his men were protecting it, that they protected the thing that brought him profit. They never stole, they never harmed, they honored the sheep. And this is what Nabal says to David when he says, hey, you're wealthy, you're amazing, you have more than enough, we've been protecting your, your promise, we've been protecting your wealth, can you help us out with a little bit of the leftovers? And look what he says in verse 10. Who is this fellow David? They've all sneered to the young man. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There's lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from nowhere? Remember, all they're focused on is that statue. And all they see David is the rebellious little nobody who comes from nowhere. So David's young men returned and told what they've all said. He is so consumed with what is his. Listen to what he says. Why should I take my bread, my water, my meat, my shears? Why should I use my stuff and bless this nobody? He becomes so obsessed with what's his that he misses a truth that I think so many of us miss. And it's this in Psalm 24. David writes about this truth in Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. The fact of the matter is, what's yours ain't really yours. It's God's. The earth is God's and everything in it. Your kids are not really your kids. Because God knew them before you ever got prego. So what God says is, I have seen you fit to manage this child of mine, so I'm giving you the authority to manage what I own. Your house is not your house. It's when you die, the house ain't going to fall down. Most of the time. It's still going to be there. Your car most likely is still going to be here in some form. The money in your pocket is still going to be here in some form. It's, it's everything is the Lord's. And he says, I'm asking you to manage what's mine. What you possess is temporary. You are not going to be here forever. So we are called to steward what we have while we are here on this earth. And that should change everything about our perspective. Because our first thoughts about things should not be that this is mine. 
It should be, God, what would you have me do with this thing that you've given me to manage? Because this is what we do in the church. Why am I going to give my time to that? It's not your time. It's time that you've been given to manage. And we should start looking at our time and see what we're truly managing unto God. Because if we took an honest assessment about what we do with our time, we got to be real honest about is God getting glory in the time we so-called manage. In your free time, what are you giving to God? Because there is nothing about your time that is your time. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything's in it. Everything is God's. So our position should not be anymore, what do I want to do with my time or my money or my skill or my ability or my family or my whatevers? It's not yours. But you are deemed worthy to manage it. It's a legitimate problem throughout the ages. And Jesus even teaches on it. He teaches about managing extra. Because we've all got a little extra. We've got some extra time. And what you give your eyes to and your ears to and what you put your hand to should be managing it in such a way that God gets glory. You never get free time or a break from that. But that's what we do in the American culture. I serve God all the time. I deserve a break. No, no, you don't. God knows it so much that he says, I'm creating the system of serving that you work six and rest one. He says, I understand the importance of rest, but manage your time to where you rest when I say so. Because I know you need it, therefore I will give you the time that you need. But don't you make that call. You serve me and let me make that call. Y'all quiet. Is this all right? That's really what we need to be doing. He teaches on this in Luke 16. Look at Luke 16, uh, verse 19. <coughs> Jesus said there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine lemon who lived in each day in luxury. <coughs> at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, kind of like David wanting the scraps from Nabal's celebration, it says the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. That's a, that's a pretty good spot in heaven. I'm sitting next to Abraham. He had many sons and many sons had... <laughs> the rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23, he went to the place of the dead. There in torment... He saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. I want you to pay attention to that because we're going to get. It says, in torment, he saw what was going on in heaven. <laughs> the rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, that time in your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing and now he's here being comforted and you're in anguish besides there's a great chasm separating us no one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there and then the rich man said please father Abraham at least, at least send him to my father's home I've got five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up just like me in this place of torment Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. Abraham's just like, mm. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. Isn't that what we always want? We want this like out-of-body experience of a messenger, and Abraham's like, it's written down. But Abraham said that they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. They won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. This stuff is written. And we need to be so persuaded that it changes the way of life for you. We get consumed with what we need and we don't disperse to others in need with what we currently have. Because we don't know how to manage extra. And sometimes we have an overabundance of money but we won't give the extra. We see the man on the side of the road and we judge why they are not worthy of our money, not understanding that your money is not even yours to be worthy of. 
we have extra in groceries and we let them spoil instead of driving them 15 minutes to give it to someone under their bridge starving to death. We have an overabundance of talent and skill where you have people that come wishing they had your level of skill, but we are so selfish that we will not manage it correctly. We hold it all in because we don't manage extra. There is someone that needs your extra. There is someone that needs what you got. And the question is no longer, God, what would you do for me? The question changes to God, how do I manage my extra? Because in managing your extra, that's when God gives you the blessing based off of your management. <laughs> how you manage extra dictates how much heaven is unlocked in your life here on this earth. Let's read some verses in that passage again in verse 22. Finally, the poor man died, was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried. He went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted and you're in anguish. In other words, you are reaping what you and and besides there was a great chasm separating us no one can cross over to you from here no one can cross over to us from there he says you did nothing on the earth and what you sow is what you reap the principle is not just for now because we talk about sowing and reaping now but it's also for eternity and we saw that passage where this dude who was in the torment of hell can see what's going on in the heavenlies. What if our perception of torment is no longer just burning in a fiery pit, but what if the perception of torment is the idea that when you are eternally in torment, it's because you're so close to something God and seeing people so wrapped up in him, but you're never allowed to touch it again. Because we always talk about hell as the fiery pit. And there is a lake of fire. Make no mistake about it. But the true torment of eternity in hell is that you're separated and you can never touch it. So let's go further. Because in this place you can never cross over, you can never get it, and it's because of what you did on this earth. Thy kingdom come, your will be done, on the earth as it is in heaven. You want heaven in your home but you won't sow peace because you'd rather wait for it to be handed to you than sow what little bit you have. We want peace to rain down from heaven, but we're not storing anything up to rain down. You have no extra in peace because we failed to sow because we're expecting it from circumstances rather than the intimacy of the Father. We get a little bit of peace in situations. We come to church, we get a little bit of peace. We get fulfilled. And then what happens is we hang on to it and we build up these walls around everything in our lives because we're so scared that someone is going to steal our peace. But God says, give and it will be given. So what you have, that extra you have. Because if you've got peace, it's extra. Well, why is it extra? Because you're saved eternally in the name of Jesus. So anything apart from that is extra. Any fruit above salvation is extra. So if you've got a little bit of peace, don't hold on to it because you don't want to lose it. Give it so you'll get more. Because what you sow, if you want more peace, give peaceful things. If you want more comfort, give comfort. You've got, you've got to sow these things. What you do here, it says you'll reap there. And what is stored there in heaven won't just be waiting for eternity, but it's experienced and unlocked now. We read scriptures about storing up in the heavenlies, but it's not just waiting on you for eternity. We store it up in the heavenlies, and he says, what's going on here? My will being done here, I want it on earth now just like it is here. And the way you get it on earth is you've got to start sowing it here so that you can create a foundation in your life where it's unlocked now. But we've got this whole thing upside down. We've got this whole thing backwards. 
We hold on to what we got because we want to make sure that we keep it. And God says, if you give, it will be given. If you sow it, you will reap. It's a very simple concept, but we have run so far from it. And Jesus teaches this parable, and that's exactly what David's going through. This student of all has plenty, and because he is so obsessed with himself, he will not sow into David's need. So in 1 Samuel, is, is, this, is this speaking to you? So in 25 verse 12, it says, So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal said. Get your swords. <laughs> David replies. Remember how I was talking about that emotional time that sets you off? What, what did David just experience? The prophet died. And he was taking a trip to grieve. And in his grieving and his anger and his hurt and his pain, he says, can you give me some food? I've been protecting everything, making you money. And the dude says, get the heck out of here. And David says, get your swords. Was David's reply as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David and the other 200 remained behind to guard the equipment. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail. Who was Abigail? Nabal's wife. Went to Abigail and told her, uh, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at him. And these, been, these men have been very good to us, and we've never suffered harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us this entire time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and the sheep. You need to know this and figure out what to do, because there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He is so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. Describing David. David's P.O.'d. Well, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you shortly. But she did not tell her husband what she was doing. Let me just say something real quick. The reason Abigail was Nabal's wife is because he bought her with his wealth. But money can't buy loyalty. It's, your money and your extra is never to use to your advantage to manipulate. It is something that you can use for blessing when you have a chance to bless. You manage extra for them, not manage it for you. Because the extra we try to manage, we always put a little negotiation on it or a clause on it. I'll give if I get a return. But God says give and never expect a return. Just lean on the promise that I'll give you what you need. And people see. People see. Because Nabal was in control, and there was a monument about what happened with Saul. And even though the government was trying to kill him, and Saul was trying to kill him, the people saw one thing. David hadn't done one thing to us. He's protected us, and he hasn't stolen anything. Your integrity is your greatest testimony. And it will always prove you to be, to, 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 to be a person who is under a covering of blessing. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the perversity of the unfaithful will destroy them. You want to be under a covering of protection? Check your integrity. The reason Abigail took all this food and put it on donkeys and went to David wasn't because Abigail woke up one day and said, I'm supposed to do it. The people saw the integrity of a man and they testified about who he was. And all they ever knew him was was a rebellious person trying to, trying to take glory from King Saul. And they said, Abigail, he's mad and he's frustrated and we're scared to death. He's going to come kill us all and do something. Could you do something? Because this entire time we haven't seen this emotional thing. We've seen a great man. And in verse 20, it says that she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine she saw David and the men coming toward her. David had just been saying, well, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protect his flocks in the wilderness and nothing he almost lost or stolen, but he repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man in his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Look at David. He's mad. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. Look at this. She is the wife of a ridiculously wealthy man, and she was bowing to an outlaw in the wilderness. She fell at his feet and said, I accept all blame in this matter. Look at the humility in Abigail. 
My Lord, please listen to what I have to say. I know the ball is a wicked and ill-tempered man, but please don't pay any attention to him. That's how most wives talk about their husband. <laughs> He's a fool. His name suggests it. Matter of fact, the word Nabal in the Greek and Hebrew actually means fool. He was named a fool. But I never even saw this young man you sent. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taken vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here is a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I've offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty. Look at this. The dynasty of David leads to someone that we know very well. And his name is Jesus. David's dynasty is dependent upon his decision in this situation. And you have this wealthy woman saying, the Lord's going to reward you with a lasting dynasty. You're fighting the Lord's battles. You have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Even when you're chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is in safe care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear as like stones shot from a sling. Who shot a stone with a sling at a giant? When the Lord has done all he promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. She's saying, keep your integrity, dude. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. And David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. This entire time up to this point, the only man David received as the voice of the Lord was Samuel. But what happened in the beginning of this chapter? Samuel died. Sometimes in grieving, betrayal in life, it's really hard to believe that God is still for you. But let me remind you, let me remind you something that just because one thing is one, just because one thing ends doesn't mean that it is your end. God says, old age took the prophet, but I'll guide this woman to be my messenger in this time of need. Think about King Saul. When King Saul chased David a few chapters ago where Samuel and the prophets were, there was such a degree of the presence of God that King Saul, who was doing everything against God, it says when he entered the presence of the prophets, King Saul laid down and started prophesying. And in this moment when Samuel, the spiritual father, the man who was the voice of God to David, when he died, David was mad and he was about to mess everything up. And God says, it's time for you to go, Abigail, to speak to my man of God. Verse 33, thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. He recognized the voice of God in this woman who saw justice. For I swear, verse 34, by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow morning. And then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I've heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. David gave God glory for correcting what he wanted to do out of a moment of anger. If you haven't picked up on this yet, David has gone from a, a dude like taking care of sheep up through all these successes. And if you're seeing the pattern, the higher he gets, gets in his success, he's messing up more and more and more. He went from a man that never did anything wrong to causing 85 priests to kill cutting Saul's robe, and now he's trying to plot to kill a dude that did nothing to him just because he didn't give him a piece of meat. <laughs> That's kind of where... <laughs> That's kind of where we're at sometimes, isn't it? The higher we go up the pole of success, we tend to get a little more prideful, a little more arrogant. And it's in those times that you have got to manage the extra... Because sometimes the voice of God comes, comes through something that you never expected to walk into your life. David's constant was Samuel and God. 
And then this form of extra walks in as the form of a wealthy woman who bows before him and gives a voice to the Lord. And he received it. You won't be perfect, but don't let imperfection disqualify you from seeking. Because it seems like when we mess up, we want to back away from everything. And we want to get out of the game. And we don't want to serve. And you start to manage your extra wrong without understanding you're managing it wrong. Because we mess up and we back up and we say, I've got to take a time where I don't do anything. I've got to take a time where God doesn't get me. And God's like, it's not your time. You're not perfect, but can you still seek me because I use imperfect people? Because let's not forget, David keeps messing up at this point, but David's still anointed to be the great king. Even Saul. Saul was corrupt, but the potential of what Saul was is he could have been a spiritual father to the man who gave generations unto Jesus. Can you imagine being like that being your protege? Right, who'd you influence? Uh, you know, I mean, I, I raised up the guy that would give birth to generations that would lead to Jesus who, like, saved the world. And, you know, like, that's what he was capable of. But he didn't want to manage that. He didn't want to manage the extra of someone better than him. Because he saw intimidation instead of potential. <laughs> don't, let, don't, don't let the extra cause you to act out of emotion, which stems from depending on yourself more than, than managing the extra correctly. <laughs> In verse 36... It says, when Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and was celebrating like a king. Of course he was. He was managing his extra wrong. He was getting drunk. He was eating too much. He was more than full. He was celebrating all of his wealth and all of his accomplishments and everything that's him, and he has gone to the next level of not managing extra. You know, I, 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 look, I look at drunkenness, and I kind of think it's not about necessarily even just being drunk. It's about your man is extra wrong. Like you had so much wine to share, but you took it all for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> you all right? He was very drunk, so she didn't tell me anything about her meeting with David until the next day. This is so funny. In the morning, the ball was sober, and his wife told him what happened, and as a result, he got a stroke. <laughs> Can you, like, isn't that hilarious? <laughs> you did what? And he laid paralyzed on his bed like a stone. Ten days later, ten days later the Lord struck him, and he died. I love God. <laughs> but what, do we, what have we been studying? God says, don't take revenge. I'll bring justice. He said, David, through Abigail, don't kill this man. I got that. He, come, <laughs> he, comes, he comes home, and, he, and the, his wife says, hey, um, that dude, David, that like, came to you, and you said, no, I gave him some of our food. And I gave him, like, some raisins and some fig cakes. And the dude had a stroke. He was so mad. And he died 10 days later. Why? He reaped what he sowed. He did not store treasure in heaven by giving David extra. He said, all this extra I'm taking for myself. So what unlocks out of you not storing? Not heaven. Torment and death. It's not God deciding, I'm just going to kill Nabal. It's, this is what he's unlocking. You wonder why you're in torment? Because you're unlocking things that you haven't taken the time to store. I'm miserable in my life. Well, what have you sowed and stored up in heaven? Because you reap what you sow, and if you're reaping torment, you must not have been sowing too much good stuff. And we blame situations and we blame God and God's like, I've given you the system. I've given you the pattern. I've told Moses and the prophets to write it down. I'm not going to send someone down to heaven to have a spiritual whatever with you. This is what it is. Are you going to abide? When David in verse 39 heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord who has avenged the insult that I received from Nabal and he has kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. 
Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. Look at David. <laughs> oh, you single now. <laughs> All right. Hey, hey guys, y'all want to send another message? <laughs> I, can, I can just imagine David, like, the first time Abigail shows up. Like, because remember, Ab, like, David's mad and he's ready to kill, like, a whole nation. And then he's like, hold up. What you got? So he's, I'm sorry. Verse 40. When the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to Miriam. Well, she bowed low to the ground and responded, I would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave washing the feet of his servants. I just, I just pray for that day. Verse 42. Quickly getting ready, she took along five of her servant girls as attendants, mounted her donkey, went with David's messengers, and so she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam, sure, from Jezreel, making both of them his wives. We're going to talk about that in a second. And look at verse 44. Finally, we have mention of him. Saul, meanwhile, this whole time, had given his daughter, Michael, David's wife, Remember, David was married to her, and she planned the escape to a man from Galilee named Paltis, son of Laish. So David's lost one in this game, too. Now, is, don't y'all love scripture? God's like, you lost one wife, I'll give you two. And that guy over there, like, I'm going to make him have a stroke when he hears about what your wife did. <laughs> but now... The fact of the matter is what's going on here is polygamy. Because David's got multiple wives. And that's a big debate. Like, why did God allow this? Like, why was, why was this going on? Because if God is truth and God is justice, he doesn't allow it one day and not allow it the next. Like, he didn't, God didn't wake up one day and change his mind and said, you know what, I'm thinking about people like David who have two wives and it's not working. So, like, I'm just, I just want y'all to just make sure y'all just marry one apiece. God didn't change his mind. What's going on here is that the people and the nations were far from God. And they were being led by corrupt leadership, and everything was in corruption. Everything was far from God. The restoration of these people was a process. The generations would lead to Jesus. And if you read through the Old Testament, it's not until Malachi that the issue of polygamy is even addressed. Malachi brings truth that we should be monogamous with one wife, one husband. So what's going on here? It's a truth that we need to hear. God says, I want to restore everything, including this selfish polygamy. But before I can tackle the issue, I've got to restore a nation through pure leadership. And we've got to get through issues A, B, C, D, E, and F before I ever tackle G. And what the church is great at is we love to focus on issue G. But we, won't, we don't want to embrace each other through A, B, C, D, E, and F. How do we tackle the issues? Manage extra. Maybe you've, you've been loved by family. And people need to experience that. And because they haven't experienced that, they are wrapped up in so much sin but we do exactly what the rich man did to Lazarus. We see them wrapped up in sin, and we say, they don't deserve my extra. And God says, it's only when they get your extra that their sin starts to unravel. Look at David. He was about to murder somebody. The only thing that stopped it was when Abigail came with the extra. And David said, praise God you came with all this stuff because I was about to kill someone. Praise God for you. It wasn't Abigail. It was Abigail bringing extra. How do you manage extra? We want to change the nation. I heard a preacher talking about this. And I, I, I thought it was amazing. Think of the word imagination. In imagining imagination, you get the image 
of a nation. The church loves to talk about how we need revival and we need restoration and we need newness and we need to be heaven on earth. But no one is willing to manage extra and imagination, have the image of a nation that we're running after. We have the image of a nation, but no one's managing extra in pursuit of that nation that we don't yet walk in. Like we want to see people before God, but we won't manage our extra and our talents and our gifts, our abilities and our pocketbook. But we love to come and pray and talk about the nation. We can have the image of a nation, but we've got to manage extra in the pursuit of the nation. What is the nation we're in pursuit of? We're in the pursuit of a nation that is totally fallen before God and, and totally worshiping him. But we don't manage extra, and we're wondering why we're not seeing it. Because your time is all about you. Your money is all about you. Your talents are all about you. Your skills are all about you. Your, your, your blessings are all about you. Your, everything is all about you in God's light. The reason I'm giving all of this to you is so that you can put extra into an, an, the image of a nation that we do not yet have that I'm calling you to possess. This whole time, David is on the way to become the king of a nation to lead them to God. And part of the process was a wealthy man giving a little bit of table scraps to 600 men. And because he wouldn't manage it correctly, in 10 days he was gone. You want to know why you're reaping all this horrible stuff in your life? It's not because God's mad at you. It's because it's the system that you're unlocking. We put too much responsibility on God and Satan. And I do mean God and Satan. Satan's defeated, but sometimes we give, God, we, we give Satan too much credit and we give God too much blame. Why didn't God do this? You did it. Well, Satan did this. No, he didn't. He suggested something and you managed the suggestion instead of putting extra. What is the extra? Your identity. When temptation comes at you, it's not I rebuke temptation. It's I am managing the extra of my new identity where temptation does not have access to latch on to me. See, it's not about just rebuking things. The reason that stuff never got on Jesus, the Bible says, was because nothing was found corrupt in his image. So when temptation and sin came at Jesus, it couldn't latch on because there was nothing in Jesus that was imperfect. He was in perfect identity. If stuff's latching on to you, it's because you are not managing your identity unto God. This, this is deep stuff. This is good stuff. I want to close this with this. It's another parable in Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Just make sure you turn that volume down a little bit. It says, Then he, Jesus, told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. He said, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, be merry. God said to him, you fool, you'll die this very night. And then who will get everything you work for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. This is exactly what happened to Nabal. He did not store up treasure in heaven, so he, he did not reap the extra that heaven had offering in the unlock. All he reaped was death and torment. What you do here, you're going to reap there. And what's stored there is not just going to be waiting for there, but also experience now. So if you store nothing there, the only thing you reap is the opposite of there, eternal torment and separation from God. And torment now in the separation of you and the Father. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be separated from God. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be 
someone who sees the blessing of God and, and, and I'm literally watching the blessing, but I, I can't even get relief. None of us want to be there. When we go to church and we love to you know, talk about, God's going to bless you for people who just seek him and love him, but define seeking. Manage your extra, because in seeking him, you're seeking him in everything of your extra. And that's what's going to qualify you for treasure. That's what's going to qualify you for blessing. It's saying, God, here I am. We are called to live a sacrificial life where we sacrifice everything. He says, sacrifice your wants, your desires. Be willing to leave your mother, your father, your husband. Be willing to leave everything behind in the pursuit of me. And what, what he's talking about, he's not talking about a literal leaving. He's saying, is your heart serving me in such a way that you're more obsessed with me than you are with anything else? Are you more obsessed with what makes you happy in a moment than sacrificing that happiness for a fruit of joy off of my tree? That's where we need to be. That's where we've got to be as a people. Say, man, I, I want to start managing my extra well. That God would get glory. That we would see the city of Savannah and everything in it as a holy city. I wasn't going to say this, but I'm, I'm going to. You know, I love our region and I love our city. But you ever notice how we as believers have become more obsessed with statues of the past than imagination of future? We've almost put these men of God on pedestals of what happened in before. And what they did was great. And I believe that the reason it was great because they had the correct posture of their heart to lay a foundation, understanding that it's not about them and their praise. They laid a foundation for us to, us to build off of. This city and this area is a cornerstone of this nation to be a window of heaven to release. It's a prophetic word. It's a truth. It's where we are. Let's honor the things of the past by managing extra now, understanding that what we're building now is on top of a foundation. Let's understand that what we are called to do is bring the kingdom of heaven here and now. That's the, the foundation has been laid. The work's been done. Now let's start, let's start managing the extra. You got extra time? Go pursue something. What has God called you to pursue? What has God called you to manage? Let's just go for it. Let's be a people that rise up and take a stand and no longer become a church who hides in walls and says, God, do something, but start actually pursuing the vision that God has placed in us. And the vision that God's given this house, let's see people come alive in Christ. You know how they're gonna come alive? Through your manage of extra. The love you have, the peace you have, the joy you have, the talent you have, the money you have, the time you have, the treasure you have. Let's manage it well so that people will experience the goodness of God. Amen.